0: Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 1st of May, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott and Mark Anderson from the United States. And we also have a guest today. Uh, We're just going to get straight on with a
1: little bit on Sudan here uh, over the weekend. no flights to remove people from Sudan over the weekend, but a flight today. So the Foreign Office uh, tw- tweeting this out this morning uh, New: over 2,100 people have been evacuated from Sudan in the largest and longest evacuation of any Western country. Let's just understand that this, the reason it's the longest evacuation of any Western country was because the Foreign Commonwealth Office was the slowest and Britain was the slowest country to start this program. Uh, and the slowest to evacuate anybody. The UK is running an additional evacuation flight from Port Sudan today, Monday the 1st of May. So apparently, uh, according to reports, it's uh, total chaos there as uh, as people attempt to continue to get out. Um, This is from the uh, World Food Programme. Uh, The crisis in Sudan pushes millions into hunger. World Food Programme is immediately lifting its temporary suspension put in place after the tragic deaths of our team members. Uh, so they are, again, warning that uh, the conflict there are causing problems for ordinary civilians. Um, <clears throat> what can we say? Uh, as we mentioned on Friday's programme, it's looking extremely likely uh, that uh, the rapid support forces, the paramilitary uh, organisations fighting in Sudan, are absolutely backed and supported by the West. Uh, but uh, that's, according to Tobias Elwood at least, mainly because... Uh, we don't like the fact that russia and the wagner group is there no um, so anyway now a complete change of topic but related in a way because of course uh, the fact that uh, uh, the west is is bolstering the rapid support forces in sudan was never reported in the western media it was only reported in african media the western media not doing their job as usual so i just wanted to uh, to highlight this uh, video clip. We're just going to show a short segment of it. Uh, this is Jose Vega from the United States. And uh, now he took part in the recent uh, anti-war protests over Ukraine uh, and has been involved in, in these kinds of sort of doorstepping of politicians and, and others in the United States for quite some time. Um, now, he was uh, at the Columbia School of Journalism's free speech seminar a few days ago. Uh, and he got to confront the editors of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, and Reuters. Uh, so let's have a listen to this.
2: Oh, is this the lecture hall with Seymour Hirsch? I I just I'm looking for the one with Seymour Hirsch because it's a policy and press hall event. So. Shouldn't we be talking about the Nord Stream since that's the biggest story of the century and you guys, you know, I mean, you have the executive editor of the New York Times there who came out with a phony story to try and block Seymour Hersh. It's just it's just kind of funny how that happened. You know, I mean, did you even acknowledge Seymour Hersh? All of you are executive editors of papers that broke Pentagon, Lai, Watergate. Is this the same papers or not? I mean, is there anything you've gotten right? in the last 20 years, or am I mistaken about that? I mean, it's just kind of funny, because Iraq, wrong. Syria, wrong. Russiagate, really wrong. Okay, I mean, the list goes on and on. So, the last thing you could do, to try and actually fix your reputation is acknowledge that through leaks we had to find out that Zelensky was going to bomb Moscow on the anniversary. I mean, if you're so impartial, shouldn't you at least say, right, that Zelensky was going to bring us on the verge of World War III? That seems pretty fair. While Julian Assange rots in prison, all of you got, you know, fat checks because he's in jail for doing your job. And you know what? Tucker Carlson ain't no Seymour Hirsch. but he did something you guys are scared to do. Speak the truth and actually be critical of the war, which is why he was actually fired from Fox, because you are all cowards, every single one of you. Will you at least say something, either about Nord Stream or Ukraine? I, I'm, go ahead, it's a free speech event, right? You guys are the press. Let's say something here. Mr. Khan, come on, you know, you're the executive head of the New York Times, you know? I'm just trying to get into some good trouble here, man. Woo. Listen, Karen, get out of my face for a second. I gotta talk to these gentlemen.
0: So, so I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, it needs to be done. <laughs> how how else do we deal with the fact that it's it's obvious that there is collusion across um, UK national press, uh, United States press and media in order to spin the propaganda over the war? The only way to to start to crack this is to get in these people's faces in in a polite, reasonable way, which he was. Uh, but I can imagine they were feeling pretty embarrassed up there on the stage. Well, they were certainly looking very glum,
1: so let's just very briefly look at the uh, the response that he got.
2: For being critical of this war? God damn it!
3: Listen, let's go, let's go.
2: At least say something about the people in jail for being critical of this war! They don't deserve to be in prison right now!
1: So, David, uh, he makes some reasonable points. They sit glum on the stage. In the meantime, the reaction from Columbia University is violence.
4: Yes, this is a very accurate summary of what just happened there. He made some very good points. Um, uh, He made some points about Nord Stream and they could not answer him. You had here, four presumably, <laughs> extremely well trained, well educated, highly uh, eloquent um, a, a journalists, and they could not find a single word between the four of them to defend their position against his criticism. But you know, boots and fists—they'll that'll, that'll do the job when when there when there aren't any words. So I, I, I thought the man did wonderfully and I uh, showed them for exactly the sort of uh, totalitarians uh, they are.
1: So, you know, I, as Brian said, this is something we need to see much more of. I'd love to see this type of thing happening in the United Kingdom. Uh, and uh, and then we would certainly be willing to report on Just to clarify, the, the violence was coming from the, the dean of Columbia University plus security, so uh, just incredible. Uh, now, David, let's come back to the UK and Scotland and uh, the definition, of, speaking of universities, the definition of adult human females.
4: Yes, from one university closing down free speech to another, this time Edinburgh, the uh, home of the Enlighten- Enlightenment. Uh, so there, there was an attempt, a second attempt, we tried uh, in December last year, there was an attempt uh, to, to show a film called uh, Adult Human Female about the trans debate, about trans politics, and how it's affecting women. Um, And uh, this didn't go ahead uh, because of a large protest. Um, As the Scotsman reports here, uh, Adult Human Female, made by independent filmmakers Deirdre O'Neill and Mike Wayne, was billed as an explainer about the issues, how far things have already changed for the worse for women, and how difficult it has been to be heard and to be listened to. Uh, Well more difficult than ever because it couldn't be heard and it couldn't be listened to. They said the accusation that the film is transphobic is designed to shut down debate. Of course, that's what the word transphobic means. The whole uh, labelling people as phobic, in other words, insane in some way for disagreeing uh, on some point of, uh, of of the queer agenda or the race agenda or whatever, um, is all designed to close down debate and silence people. Denver University spokesman said, we're disappointed that, again, this event could not go ahead. I'm not very convinced by that. They said, however, with pro- protesters restricting access, they weren't restricting access, that's that's a weasel word, they were barring access, Uh Uh, to the venue. Safety concerns were raised should the event proceed. It was therefore decided that the screen should not continue. So all you need in Edinburgh, you don't even need violence. You just need the realistic threat of violence and uh, the university will give in every time it would seem. Uh, We have a few uh, uh, pictures here just to show the nature of the uh, Antifa-esque Um, protesters black clad and uh, hiding their faces that's uh, very reassuring. Um, Now we're very pleased to be joined by Richard Lucas who was there.
5: Richard hello. Good afternoon yes I was indeed there yes.
4: Now we've got a little video um, to show what you were subjected to or or a small portion of it. Um, uh, we'll, We'll play this and then I would like to to explore with you a little bit about the nature of the protest and the uh, what was being said and hurled at those who actually wanted to, to attend the film
3: swing and sink and
6: grow and you think and who Just uh Chest your heels and grow and grow and show up, could you, swing and 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 who you think and who think I just can't heels and grow and grow and show-up.
2: His wife is anti abortion.
6: Unsurprising. You spin it out in the wrong direction. You got the bottle, so you roots are
2: forgotten. Given us joy as long as you're content. I got the vision, it's a
4: So they were clearly singling out Richard for special attention there, um, and indeed, I mentioned his wife. Many other things. There was a lot of kind of school, go, um, school um, ground level uh, insults. Um, but the thing that particularly concerned me, Richard, was I was I was speaking to a young lady who was at the event, and she'd been to a lot of protests, and she'd been on counter protests, where she was very much in the minority. So no shrinking violet. And she was really, really affected by the nature of the invective that was that was directed against her it was personal it was designed to create anxiety it was it was designed to cause emotional and spiritual harm i think and and she found it really very very worrying a very threatening
5: atmosphere what did you think uh it was it was a bizarre situation just to clarify there were two groups of protesters, really. There was the Antifa people. They were a handful. And they just sellotaped their flag over the entrance, a handful of them standing there. And the university just put a fence around them and obviously decided that they weren't going to do anything about it. So the university just completely capitulated, made no effort at all to remove this handful of people who were blocking the entrance. So, and then. On the other side of the road were the, uh, the so-called cabaret against hate speech you just saw a clip of. And they're all, you know, we're all about love and tolerance and peace. And why can't we all get on together? And then uh, interspersed among that message is um, yeah, pretty offensive and uh, abusive messages as well. And I don't know if you can see that picture at the moment. I mean, The, the lead singer there of the group, he's a so-called drag artist comes stripper, I would suggest. Um, I mean, so it's just a bizarre inversion. Of morality, that someone who's making their money as with a sort of perverted sex show is there with quite a mob of people hurling abuse at me. I was just sitting on the steps opposite. They just happened to recognise me because I just hold traditional uh, moral values. It's a real inversion, and it was uh, was quite bizarre. But yeah, they they don't hesitate to use just the most offensive uh, and abusive terms that they can. No hesitation at all.
4: Yeah, the um, regular viewers of the column will recognise um, the, uh, the, the the singer there. Tom Tom Harlow is his name. We covered a story back in twenty twenty two where he was trying to put on a cabaret for children in Stirling, and it was cancelled uh, following complaints and objections from the parents. Um, they were linked straight through from the the uh, social media advertising this. Show straight through to X-rated content. He had online, and the parents weren't very happy. Um, so this is this is the, the kind of leader of of that particular group. Um, the, um, now we have another little clip here of someone actually trying to get in to see the film. So this was a, a a a a middle-aged lady who wanted to see the film, who wanted to consider the arguments, and was not very happy that her Rights were being trampled on. I
6: have I right. and those
3: rights are being denied by
6: you.
3: Look,
1: please
5: Please down. No. 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 Please, no. Please stop. Please stop.
4: So, um, Richard, you had the, the officials from Edinburgh um, University were saying to yep. the woman, please stop, that they, they weren't doing anything with the people who were actually barring, barring her access, no. who were standing in the way and, and, and obstructing her. That seemed to be OK. I mean, this seems
5: bizarre. What, what did you make of the Edinburgh University's position here? I, I think they already knew what their plan was. The plan was before they started, they were not going to call the police, and it was just going to be cancelled. So as soon as these handful of people in masks stood in front of the door, the Edinburgh University's so-called security staff just put a fence around them to protect them. And so, I mean, why not put a fence around the entrance to stop these people getting into the entrance in the first place? Oh, no, they don't do that. So they let the protesters get in the way, and then put a fence around them so that no one else can get anywhere near them, and then refuse to call the police so it just came over. I mean, it was obvious their intention for the beginning was that it was not going to go ahead. And I think it would be a fascinating experience to go along with you know, half a dozen people and try and get another event canceled at Edinburgh University. See if we can get their you know, graduation ceremony canceled by standing in front of them. Let's see what they do then. They'd be pretty quickly on the phone to the police for virtually any other event in that university that people were trying to stop. But this one's a special case. And they, yeah, they didn't want it to go ahead, so they're quite happy with the way things turned out.
4: Yeah, well, the rules are certainly very asymmetric, um, but even people on the left uh, are now falling foul of them. So here we have uh, a story about Joanna Cherry. Now she's uh, left-wing, socialist, uh, Republican, lesbian, um, feminist, right? So she's she's not someone of traditional views. Uh, but she's also been cancelled. Um, so there's a live discussion uh, with her at uh, a major venue in that same square, George in, in, uh, sorry, in George Street, nearby. Um, and uh, it was called off. Tickets are no longer available. Um, and the, th- there were apparently staff members' concerns over, Jerry's, uh, over Cherry's gender-critical views. And these concerns could not be alleviated. Uh, the National continues, uh, quoting Cherry, it should not be possible for venues or the staff to no-platform lesbians or feminists who believe that sex is an immutable biological fact just because of her sexuality or beliefs. And of course, uh, what she's not saying there, but she should be, is it should not be possible for venues or the staff to no-platform anybody because of their beliefs. Um, but that's not quite what she's saying. But uh, none- nonetheless, she is standing up and saying she shouldn't be uh, discriminated against in this way. Um, she went on to say... What does it say about the fringe in Edinburgh, the home of the Enlightenment, when an elected Edinburgh politician can't be asked questions on stage in the city they represent? So this is a, a very strange thing. Um, I, I, and I know you've also experienced various bits of no platforming across the country. Um, how How difficult is it becoming in Edinburgh to actually have a conversation
5: if you are not in accordance with the trans rights ideology. Uh, The Scottish Family Party, we have terrible problems with venues cancelling us. If we book a venue for an event, we just assume it's probably going to be cancelled at the last minute. Uh, At the beginning of January, we did a little tour of the highlands and islands. We actually had three cancellations out of two events. So one of the events got cancelled, so we moved it to a new venue, and then that one got cancelled immediately as well. Uh, just the owners just being utterly spineless and pathetic, then you get the, the likes of Joanna Cherry standing up there. You probably, well, you, some viewers might be aware of her. Joan McAlpine used to be an SNP MSP, and she was a gender-critical feminist. So she was sort of no-platformed a little bit, and she was complaining about it, how unfair it was. And yeah, that very same Joan McAlpine would be front of the queue, calling for people with more traditional values to be cancelled and to be banned from council venues, their events to be, to be shut down, et cetera. So I think for a lot of these people, maybe Joanna Cherry would be among this group. Their definition of free speech, it just extends far enough to include what they think. But then people like me, would still definitely be on the blacklist, and they'd be quite happy for anyone and everyone to cancel us. So uh, yeah, I I think we need need to be very careful before we see people as allies in the campaign for free speech, because some people just wanted to extend far enough to include them and no further. Indeed.
4: And uh, if it couldn't get any dafter, um, we, we just finished with this in the Telegraph. Um, the Human Rights Commission, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, uh, paid £18,000 for an academic to write a summary report on whether academics feel able to discuss the gender wars on campuses. Um, based on an earlier study he made at the uh, City University of London. Unfortunately, um, it's now not going to be published, or so it seems, uh, because the academic in question um, had the uh, information confiscated uh, and uh, has been sacked following uh, 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 cries from activists alleging that he is transphobic. So, even the uh, report into whether academics are, are feel feel free to discuss. Um, matters of gender has in fact been cancelled by the uh, cancellation team, making sure that no one discusses anything to do with gender. You can't make it up.
0: What else? Well, there's the pause as always, but yeah, we're seeing a complete inversion of common sense and morality, and this is now. Uh, Not only government policy, it's been forced through the local authorities and ultimately venues, of course, succumb to the intimidation of those local authorities. That's how I see the system working. So the whole thing stems from the people and the policy that are driving this despicable madness. Um, So, Mark, that brings
1: us to you then. And uh, a Texas town upset by a book ban is now considering closing their library.
7: Yeah, this is in the Panhandle region of Texas um toward Oklahoma. And interestingly enough, this is a Voice of America VOA.voanews.org uh, I believe or voanews.gov. Um that's the actual official US government um propaganda/news site uh, reporting this. And uh this has to do with the long time uh, National Library Association list of uh, banned books. There's a whole thing going on here, but essentially um, we have um, a situation where the parents in this town in Texas, uh, up up in uh, Lano, Texas, are objecting uh, to books that are in the public library there that are sexually explicit. And I'm having a little trouble reading the screen here Uh, It's a little uh, smaller than I thought. Um, Hold on here.
0: Mark, let me me help you out. I'll I'll do the section that you've highlighted there. It says books uh, that have LGBTQ themes are the most likely targets, according to the report. The issue of which books are in a library and school has become a flashpoint in communities across the US with conservative lawmakers and groups saying they are, turning to banning books to protect children from pornography. Civil liberty organisations, writers and libertarians say book banning attempts are censorship. So we have, uh, Mark,
1: we have the opposite situation there then. Where, where rather than, uh, In this case, we have uh, parents actually complaining about books in the libraries rather than the libraries holding uh, trans uh, activist events. Uh, and because the parents are complaining that, that what the local authority is what, uh, threatening to close the library in its entirety?
7: Yes. Uh, not, this is not to say that there aren't libraries that have hosted tranny events and drag queens and things like that, reading children's stories. That, that has happened. But yeah, this is, as you say, Mike, a rather unique situation. Um, so, and going so- on to this next slide, I, I can read a little bit now. I appreciate Brian covering for me on that one. A book's never hurt a book has never hurt anybody, according to J.R. Decker, who said his family has lived in Llano County for generations. My government's telling me the only thing they can protect me uh, protect my child from is books. They should be worried about gun violence and school safety, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then um uh there's another quote there. A little further down this is not a nation this is not a nazi nation you don't get to pick our reading material it's ours and uh, the library is a vital part of our community um but they said it's a safe place for kids said schneider and uh, i think believe uh, i believe Mrs. schneider someone who's complaining about this it's not a safe place for kids uh these are all books that are currently on the shelf in the lano library uh and she's referring to uh Books that are sexually graphic. Um, So, what's going on here basically is that um, you have taxpayer funded libraries and you have parents who pay those taxes and they're objecting to sexually explicit material in those libraries. And the libraries themselves, in terms of being an organized force in the United States through the National Library, uh, American or National Library Association, are saying that we ought to be able to put sexually explicit books in the libraries and that's a free speech matter. That's an anti-censorship matter. And they're blaming the tax-paying parents themselves who are complaining. They're blaming them for, for censorship and saying they are the censors. And, um, uh, so the, the situation is, is, is such where, uh, parents are not allowed to have input in the very libraries that they finance as to what their children, um, uh, are reading and they don't, they're not being allowed effectively to protect them from, um, age inappropriate material. That would be the, the most concise way of putting this. Uh, I'm looking through, um, um, some of these matters. Uh, we can, we can flip through to the slide that is the, uh, top 13 most challenged books of, uh, 2022, uh, yeah, uh, this, this is something that the American Library Association, that's the actual organization, the ALA, if, if I got that wrong before, my apologies. I was a little late getting up today. But um, this will give you an idea of the books that they think ought not to be banned. And um, I need not really read much from that particular slide. We can move from there and list some of these books. Now, you have genderqueer a memoir by Maya Kobabi. Um, number of challenges, 151 Challenged for LGBTQ content claimed to be sexually explicit. Another one, All Boys Aren't Blue by uh, George M. Johnson. Number of challenges, 86. Again, challenged for LGBTQ themes and being sexually explicit. The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, uh, a well-known author. 72 challenges. Again, uh, uh, sexual abuse is uh, de- depicted in this. claim to be sexually explicit, and this one is particularly of note. Flamer by Mike Carrato, uh, sixty-two challenges, a challenge for LGBTQ etc. content. Claimed to be sexually explicit. Moving on from there, um, this one is quite uh, unambiguous, right? Uh, this book is gay by Juno Dawson. Um, several challenges there as well. LGBTQ content providing sexual education, claim to be sexually explicit. And so the ALA is um, saying that all the challenged books, I'm not listing all of them, but that's just a sampling. They're they're listing all these challenged books, but they all happen to be challenged uh, for the reason that they're sexually explicit. Um, There are no books that don't have sexually explicit themes. Uh, So you would think that if they weren't pushing an agenda, you would see some books that were not into sexual topics whatsoever. But all the books being protected are sexually explicit, uh, showing that they're basically pushing those kind of books. And they have things like uh, Right to Read Day, um, which is also depicted here in the presentation. Um, And that was just a week ago. I didn't catch it when it happened when I was on this show a week ago. But it was April 24, one week ago today, they had Right to Read Day, the American Library Association. And um, uh, so uh, they're, they're basically trying to say that whatever they want to put out there, um, no matter how sexually explicit, um, uh, you know, parents or, or rather rather children and school age kids have the right to read these things, and parents that pay the taxes for those schools for the school-based libraries, for the public libraries shouldn't have any say. And um, uh, th- this is getting into the other side of the, of the equation here a little bit. This is from the New York Post. Um, uh, this is by a columnist, Carol Markowitz. Dems, as in Democrats, don't tell us we need to shush. Don't tell us we need to be quiet. Our kids' school libraries are full of guides on sex acts and gender confusion. And I believe there's a video tied to this that will uh, further elucidate what I'm talking about. Um, uh, This is a little bit from that article. Welcome to what is inside books found in your child's school library. We apologize for the graphic nature of these pictures. You don't expect to see images like this in a newspaper or on your television. And yet they are readily available to small children in their school's library. The question is no longer whether there is pornographic materials within your kids' reach at their school. The question is is whether or not we're going to do anything about it. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has decided to act um, on this for his troubles. Democratic activists and politicians have labeled DeSantis a book burner. And I think with that, if that video is queued up, we could... uh, run that brief video. Flamer by Mike Curato was founded Broward, Collier, Hillsborough, Marion, Seminole, and Volusia County schools. The camp the boys go to in the book has an island that the book says looks like a frying pan, but we're all certain it looks like balls. It also contains a shower scene with a group of boys where a young man gets an erection. Another, where a boy watches porn and asks, why is there so much hair? While noting that those are so big. And if none of this causes you to pause, there's another section where a group of boys masturbate together and are pressured to ejaculate into a bottle. Yeah, so, I don't know. I don't know if you have comments, but you, know, you might want to
0: comment. Well, Mark, my response to this is that uh, it is an amazing coincidence that we we have this type of material popping up in countries around the world. So we can be sure that this is not policy that's been created inside the UK or the USA, because all of this is happening, particularly in Western countries around the world uh, at the same time, so this is clearly an agenda which has been created by people who are beyond the nation state, and therefore we've got to we've got to start looking at the United Nations in particular.
1: Okay, let's move on. Uh, st- sticking, sticking with the United States for a second, uh, RFK Robert Kennedy F Kennedy Jr. of course is standing for election, um, and uh, well, there have been quite a bit of comment about where he stands, for example. On climate, um, I find this, uh, this clip from from a day or two ago, uh, speaking to uh, the Iverson Show, um, and he addresses this. I was particularly interested in, in David's thoughts on this.
6: Let's watch it. Climate, climate issues and pollution issues are being exploited by you know, the, the World Economic Forum and Bill Gates and all of these uh, big you know, mega billionaires, the same way that COVID was exploited to use it as an excuse to clamp down top-down totalitarian controls on society and to um and then to give us engineering solutions and if you look closely as it turns out the guys who are promoting those engineering solutions are the people who, who own the ips the patents for those solutions oh so it's a way you know it's they're it's being used they've given climate uh, chaos a bad name you know because People now see that it's just another crisis that's being used to strip mine the wealth of the poor and to, you know, to enrich billionaires. And uh, you know, I, I, for 40 years, have had the same policy on climate and engineering. You can go check my speeches from the 1980s. And I've said, the most important solution for environmental issues, not top-down controls, it's free market capitalism.
1: David, what are your thoughts?
6: Well, that's
4: spot on, uh, that, that's really excellent. The, 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 the fact that he realises that the, the nature of the scientific debate and the nature of the manipulation of the public over Covid and the nature of the manipulation of the public and the manipulation of the science over man-made global warming is the same. It's the same scenario being run. It, on two different scales if you like one's been on for decades one only for a couple of years it's the same it's the same basic um, system of uh, manipulation that's 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 been played out um, and the fact that uh, the fact that the free market uh, price signals and all the rest of it, everything that we're busy suppressing um, has the core to actually has has the, the ability to address these issues is um, is a point that not many people in his position are making.
1: Yes, indeed. Okay, uh, now uh, back to the UK, and there's quite a lot of furore going on in social media at the moment um, over a product called Appeal. Um, let's bring uh, this on. This is uh, from Wish You Were Here on Twitter. Uh, this sticker denotes Bill Gates' toxic produce. Uh, treat it like you would, treat it his mRNA injections, avoid like the plague. Your life may depend on it. Now, uh, I'm not criticizing the person who put this particular tweet out, as you'll see in a second. There's justification for uh, saying that uh, that this is toxic, Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is that it is uh, coming to the. It's creating a lot of r within the the fact checkers. We're seeing all kinds of fact checking uh, articles coming up saying that this is false. This this idea that uh, this product is toxic. Um, So let's uh, have a look here. Uh, Here's the appeal website. Uh, they call it plant-based protection that helps the produce you love stay fresh for longer. So the idea of this is that the uh, apples, the pears and so on are coated with this plant-based protection, which means they don't have to be wrapped in plastic and so on. Um, and, uh, uh, but there's, there's quite a bit of confusion about uh, how safe it is. Um, so let's bring this on screen and just make the point very briefly that it is indeed supported by or has been supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in the past. So the Bill Gates connection is correct. But what I have noticed is that there seem to be quite a number of people uh, on social media confusing that appeal uh, with this appeal, which is a domestic cleaning product, which of course is highly toxic. Um, But uh, the best coverage that I've seen on this so far uh, is on this blog post from uh, uh, Kristen's Kitchen on Substack. Uh, And I just want to highlight a couple of quotes from this. So the the headline is, The Dangerous Chemical Bill Gates Is Coating Your Organic Produce With. Uh, Unfortunately, she says, if you think by choosing organic, you're good to go. Think again. On their website, they state, uh, we have formulations that are OMRI listed for the growers and distributors of USDA-certified organic produce. Uh, They say that it helps reduce plastic, which might be true. But what exactly is this coating made of? Uh, They state in the frequently asked questions, that there's only one ingredient but then you go on, then they go on to say uh, that it's only composed of food grade brackets multiple ingredients uh, made from quotes plant materials uh, she goes on to say appeal brags about its purified mono and diglycerides a food ingredient that is found in a variety of foods according to Dr Josh Ax mono and diglycerides are the go-to replacement for deadly trans fats and a, and a food industry staple that helps keep oil and fat from separating uh, Harry explains that this additive is a byproduct of oil processing, including partially hydrogenated canola and soybean oils. This additive is a byproduct of oil processing, which contains artificial trans fats, a danger food ingredient known to cause coronary heart disease and linked to fifty thousand fatal heart attacks a year. And so the article goes on, and I strongly recommend that that people read that article. So there's there's two issues going on here. One is the confusion over the name appeal, uh, because uh, there are various uh, Uh, regulator uh, reports uh, using that name, Appeal, which refer to the domestic cleaner, not to the uh, coating for your vegetables and fruit. Um, On the other hand, uh, it's pretty clear that, uh, or at least it's pretty opaque, uh, exactly what's in this product. Uh, And what they say also in the frequently asked questions is, of course, you can't wash it off. So if you're going to consume the product, uh, you're going to consume whatever it is that they are coating the product with. Um, So I think the fact checkers in this case are again, once again, being very narrow in their interpretations when it comes to saying that this allegation is fake or false. Uh, And I think there are many, many more questions to be asked about it. Uh, Now, moving on then to uh, online safety. And if you remember uh, last week, we were talking about this open letter on the online safety bill from an organization called Threema. And Threema is uh, an app which allows people to chat with each other. Uh, and it supports end-to-end encryption and they were absolutely warning that the the EU with their chat control legislation and the UK with its online safety bill, same for the United States, uh, using child protection as a pretext for full-scale surveillance of chat communication without probable cause Uh, and uh, you know that was signed by a number of organizations including uh, Threema themselves of course. I just wanted to mention that India now has banned 14 of these messaging apps uh, because they are claiming that the apps are being leveraged by Pakistan-linked terrorists. So it's not about child safety in uh, in uh, India, it's about terrorism. Uh, and so because uh, terrorists are using these apps just like the rest of the population, then the entire population has to be banned from using the apps. Uh, so this is a pretty bogus uh, reason to be uh, to be doing this, but I just wanted to make the point that this seems to be A global policy, this uh, restriction on encryption uh, and the ability to to have a conversation, which is not being surveilled by your particular nation state.
0: Well, if we can't decide what we can and can't eat, or should and should not eat, we're certainly not going to be allowed to, um, you know, as to how we communicate with each other. Indeed, with each other, somebody else has got to do that for our safety. Uh, Now,
1: David, uh, let's move on to economic matters, and first, Republic Bank.
4: Yes, another week, another banking collapse. So this is First Republic. Uh, We see here their share price, um, which dropped from $144 uh, a share to essentially zero. Um, And it was sitting at $3 a share on uh, Friday. And uh, this was really the end. So the Federal uh, Deposit Insurance Corporation was going to take it into receivership. Uh, on Friday, uh, Financial Times uh, then reported um, that we have um, a success. Uh, we've managed to get someone to, to take it. It's uh, JP Morgan um, has uh, put in a bid uh, for for First Republic. Uh, so uh, Financial Times reports that... Um, the, uh, federal, uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and California Regulators, which announced the deal early Monday morning after working through the weekend, um, said they were simultaneously closing the bank and selling off all 93.5 billion of its deposits and most of its assets to J.P. Morgan. Um, the move makes the San Francisco-based First Republic Bank the second largest bank failure in United States history after Washington Mutual in 2008 and marginally bigger than Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, So it's all gone. Um, So JP Morgan are acquiring $173 billion in loans from the First Republic um, and and it's not assuming the failed, uh, failed lender's corporate debt or preferred stock. JP Morgan will get a one-time $2.6 billion gain on the deal, but expects to spend $2 billion on restructuring costs in the next 18 months. The federal government, the Federal uh, uh, um, Deposit Insurance Corporation, is providing $50 billion uh, in five-year fixed-term financing. So... um, on Friday, the the story was well. The regulators are going to are, are moving in to save um, uh, First Republic Bank. Um, the 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 nature of the saving is the same way that they save horses that break the legs at Beecher's Brook. It's it's uh, it, it, they die why right? it it eliminates them. In this case, the the point I, I think we should take away is we've got a big bank, one of the systemically important banks that's backed by the government very very closely, JP Morgan have come in, they've bought up the bank at a bargain rate. Uh they've made an initial 2.6 billion on the deal and another American bank no longer exists. The position in America was they have a lot of banks, a lot of small banks, which fund the local community, um, fund industrial and commercial activity in the local community. And this is going to become less and less as the banks are swept up to J.P. Morgan and other giant corporations. Uh, And the banking uh, the banking environment in America will become much more like it is in Britain, in Europe um, where a few very large players dominate the market almost entirely and small banks are unknown. We're not there yet but that's the direction of travel and um, Just before this uh, latest collapse, the Federal Reserve managed to get the report on the last collapse out. So that was quite good. So the Review of the Federal Reserve's Supervision and Regulation of Silicon Valley Bank. That's the name name on the report. Um, I thought it was quite funny that the first page of the report was all advertising what the Fed do. How good are the Fed? And it says, um, well, the Federal Reserve promotes the stability of the financial system. This is in a report about the instability of the financial system. And it says it promotes the safety and soundness of individual financial institutions. that at the introduction to a report about the failure of a financial institution. I thought that was quite funny. They have no sense of irony or indeed shame, it would appear. Key takeaways from the report. It's all the Silicon Valley, uh, Valley Bank's board of directors and management's fault. They failed to manage the risks. It's not the Fed, you understand. The Fed's fine. Uh, the supervisors, that's the Fed did not fully appreciate the extent of vulnerabilities as Silicon Valley Bank grew in size and complexity okay, it might be a little bit of their fault Uh, they did not identify the vulnerabilities so when they did identify the vulnerabilities they did not take sufficient steps to ensure that Silicon Valley Bank fixed those problems quickly enough so okay, it was a regulatory failure why do we have a regulatory failure? oh well, you see, it's all about the economic growth regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act. What was that? Well, that was a Trump-era piece of legislation. So uh, they've managed to say oh, it was all Trump's fault. And here we see the Financial Times uh, reflecting that Federal Reserve uh, review pins the blame for the Silicon Valley Bank's failure on Donald Trump-era rule changes. So it's all the fault of the Donald. Um, and it's and and the, the takeaway that they've got is well, if we just have more of the Fed. Uh, that'll that'll fix things. We need more regulation, more federal control, more federal reserve control, and uh, everything will be fine. The problem here was individual banks and uh, a little bit of a little bit of liberty. So we don't want to have any of that. Uh, again, it's all pushing towards centralisation of banking, centralisation of control, and uh, this I don't think will uh, be in the long term term interest of the United States economy, which was hugely. Benefit uh, the, the benef- uh, hugely benefited from the diversity in banking that that generated the the capital for the remarkable growth that America had in the uh, late late nineteenth and through most of the twentieth century. It was based on a banking system that was very diverse, and that seems to be uh, coming under ever greater pressure.
0: Okay, thanks, David. David, thank you for that. Well, let's uh, have an update on Ukraine. Ukraine, a massive war in Ukraine, which over the weekend seems to have been disappearing from uh, British media at least. Um, What's been happening, massive attacks, more or less along the whole front line, um, particularly heavy fighting around Bakhmut. big deaths of Ukrainians, maybe reaching up to 800, 900 men a day. Um, The Russians have been attacking ammunition depots. They've been attacking Ukrainian reinforcements. Uh, They've been uh, blowing up huge amounts of ammunition. But none of this was good enough for the BBC in particular to report. And this is their major article for today on Ukraine. One of their former journalists in Ukraine, a man called Bondarenko, has Uh, been killed on the front line. Now, he went and joined the military, so he wasn't uh, killed as a journalist. He was killed as a soldier. And this is tragic, but the point I want to make here is we've got hundreds of thousands of war deaths But there seems to be only one casualty for the BBC. And personally, I find this utterly obscene that so much should be written on one man, but not on the rest. Uh, The authors uh, come out of the BBC's Ukrainian team. And uh, one of the things that I found particularly difficult is to find any information about the BBC's Ukraine team. I can find the names of people and titles, but I can't find anything about the funding or the organisational structure. So if there are any people in our audience who can help on that, it will be much appreciated. Well, if that was the BBC's approach, uh, let's have a look at the uh, Ministry of Defence here for the UK, uh, because they came in a completely different angle they decided to ignore all of the fighting that's been taking place and the deaths, of course, over the last few days. And they've uh, homed in on Russian defences. So this was uh, one of their latest tweets, uh, which you can still see if you go and visit their Twitter page. Uh, let's have a look at how they approached it. This is pure propaganda from the Ministry of Defence. And uh, this is how it's done. Uh, Since the summer of 2022, Russia has constructed some of the most extensive systems of military defense works seen anywhere in the world for decades. Um, So these are not only uh, defenses uh, near the front lines, but have also been dug deep inside areas Russia uh, Russia currently controls. Uh, It says that Russia has made a particular effort to fortify the northern border of occupied Crimea. And uh, it says that Russia has also dug hundreds of miles of trenches well inside internationally recognized Russian territory. So whilst uh, the Russian onslaught against the Ukrainians continue and the Ukrainians are dying in their thousands short of ammunition in very uh, muddy, rainy conditions still, uh, the Ministry of Defense switches to the fact that essentially the Russians are running for cover and having to create all these uh, defensive positions. And this, I thought, was particularly offensive. It says, however, some of these works have likely been ordered by local commanders and civil leaders in, quote, attempts to promote the official narrative that Russia is threatened by Ukraine and NATO. Well, of course, that is the absolute reality that Russia is facing a NATO proxy war. Uh, But here's the meat of it. The defences highlight Russia's leaders' deep concern that Ukraine could achieve a major breakthrough. So basically, the Russians faced with a NATO proxy war. The Ukrainians do the dying. Um, But what are the Russians doing? They're they're building defences, which ensure that Ukrainian forces are going to be slaughtered in attacking prepared defensive lines with no air cover. So this is pretty incredible stuff. The reality on the battlefield is that the Russian advances through bakhmut continue. So the area inside the blue line, last Ukrainian stronghold in the west, southwest of bakhmut And uh, this is a little bit more detail. This has come from the Free Russia website, another excellent uh, channel for analysis. So I encourage you to have a look at that yourself and support. But detailed maps and uh, the light blue area there was showing the the last uh, Russian advance leaving one stronghold. And this is the stronghold highlighted on the map. And this was a Ukrainian uh, stronghold because it comprises a large number of very high-rise buildings and therefore it it forms a natural fortification. Um, But the Russians also now moving behind that area uh, to complete a total encirclement. So... This is where things become very unpleasant. But the Ukrainians now, if they try and escape, are left with just open fields and muddy terrain. All of this is under Russian artillery fire. So the Ukrainian casualties are horrific and they will be even worse when the rest of the troops inside Bakhmut uh, surrender and attempt to leave or attempt to leave. This is a bit more detail of uh, the Russians moving through behind the stronghold area. And uh, I'm just going to highlight this. It looks very much like a temple if you see a picture of it, but it's actually a bank. And if we bring that into a uh, image, a photographic image here, one on the right of the screen, you can see the utter devastation of Bakhmut as the fighting has taken place. You can see in the lower foreground the bank And uh, you can see the highlighted Ukrainian citadel there, which is the last area. And indications are that the Ukrainian troops are already leaving that area. If we have a look at a little bit of film footage, this is where, again, the Western media doesn't want to talk reality because the Russians are now using extremely powerful air-launched weapons, and we get some idea from the size of these explosions. So rather than uh, using men to clear the buildings, the Russians are simply destroying the whole building blocks. And uh, this one we may have shown before, but I'll show it again because this is the barometric weapons being used. Uh, They don't have to hit the blocks themselves because the shockwave kills troops within the shockwave uh, area. So uh, that is uh, particularly bad. The next little clip is a little bit distressing, but there's no other way of showing this. Uh, This is bringing us into the reality of what's happening on the ground, particularly where troops are caught in the open. And I'm going to say that could be Ukrainian or Russian. So we've got an armored vehicle here with a casualty lying bleeding, and it would appear one seriously injured or dead Ukrainian soldier. But the reality is now that uh, the statistics, the UK column scenes suggest that uh, up to 300,000 plus Ukrainians have been killed, possibly 50,000 plus Russians, and that leaves some 900,000 men injured. And of course, the BBC is still not going to tell the truth about the carnage. And I'll just add for people who are listening in that in the clip, at least one of the Ukrainian soldiers was able to get up unlike his colleagues. But hand in glove with this, uh, we have really offensive pictures of uh, forceful recruiting, of more people to uh, go on the front lines. The story behind the image I'm showing on screen, uh, well, it's a a Ukrainian soldier with a gun who's trying to pull a woman out of a car. He's not after the woman, he's after a young man who has escaped the recruiting office and has sought sanctuary in the car. And there is another picture here of a young man clearly uh, going to be taken by the recruiting squad. Um, But he does manage actually to get away, which is pretty stunning. What's going to happen to these young men on the battlefield? They're going to die very quickly and they will probably die without even seeing a Russian soldier. But of course, British Ministry of Defense, the BBC, and the rest of the nation's newspapers simply don't want to tell the truth of the carnage in Ukraine. Okay,
1: let's uh, bring Rusi on screen. And this is the Royal United Services Institute. They've uh, published in the last couple of days uh, a, a paper called Dangerous Targets, Civilian Nuclear Infrastructure and in the War in Ukraine, Preliminary Lessons for Safety and Security in War Zones. Um, so of course they're very concerned about uh, Zaporozhye and other uh, nuclear facilities, civilian nuclear facilities in Ukraine. So Let's look and see what they're saying. Uh, they say uh, the greatest threat to Ukraine's uh, nuclear power plants is likely to be from a direct strike on a react. Sorry, is unlikely to be from a direct strike on a reactor and, and ensuing large-scale radiological incidents similar to the 1986 Chernobyl disaster but rather the failure of key systems namely water and energy supply or human error. Uh, They say there's also a risk that Ukraine may run out of available storage for its used nuclear fuel as it cannot currently transport spent fuel safely. Uh, Finally, the possibility that Russia may manufacture a radiological incident uh, at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant or any other facility to spoil a Ukrainian offensive should not be disregarded. Well, I'm not aware that the Russians have ever said that that was... Something that was on their uh, radar, but well, th- suddenly Russi decides that it is and they're clearly suggesting there could,
0: could be some kind of false flag. Well, this is fascinating, Mike, when uh, there's a lot of um, information coming out at the moment, say the Americans now monitoring uh, Ukrainian territory for uh, nuclear fallout or nuclear waste or dust. Uh, and at this particular time, Rusi is pointing a finger at the Russians.
1: Yes. So let's go on. Over the past year, they say Russia's military activity in Ukraine has resulted in serious threats to the safety and security of Ukraine's nuclear infrastructure. And there is good reason to believe that Russia has violated the protections granted to nuclear power stations international humanitarian law. So they make a number of points. I've just chosen a few of them. Uh, this is the, these are the things that need to be done. We need to ensure the personal safety and welfare of staff at nuclear power plants, including sufficient staffing levels. So we've got to sh- ensure the personal safety and welfare of staff, unless they're Russian, because if they belong to Ross Atom, uh, then they need to be uh, penalized. Uh, they don't say what penalized means in this case, but they say that penalize Ross Atom staff operating at the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant for participating in Russia's occupation of Ukraine. Uh, Then we've got to establish deterrence against deliberately manufactured radiological incident by making clear to Russia that any such incident would be followed by a massive response to mitigate damage and expanded support for Ukraine's war effort. What I'm going to say here is at no point in this document do they suggest that perhaps negotiations and a ceasefire and the end of the war might be the best way to protect uh, the civilian nuclear infrastructure. No, uh, we've got to make sure that we... uh, have a massive response, should there be anything, which is uh, what they would describe as a Russian deliberately manufactured
0: radiological incident. At the same time, we, the British, the West, pumps in the uh, depleted uranium weapons. The irony is incredible. Isn't it? Um,
1: Okay. If you like what the UK Column is doing, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Options to help us out there. Now. uh, membership fees will be uh, rising today, so you've still got a, a few hours if you would like to get in. I'd just like to, uh, on the old rates, and I'd just like to say thank you very much to the uh, the people that have done so over the last few days. That's very, very much appreciated, um, but there's still time. It'll be uh, uh, dinner time tonight before, uh, before we see that change, probably. Uh, or you could pick something up at the UK Column Shop. That would be much appreciated as well, uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms. Uh, particularly at ukcolumn.org, where we have lots of content uh, that needs to be shared. Yeah, excellent. Uh, David, uh, interview tomorrow, Yes, interview uh, with
4: uh, Professor Norman Fenton uh, once again tomorrow. Uh, both uh, Debbie and I were conducting that. Uh, it covers uh, a lot of very important statistical evidence regarding COVID um, and also the nature of the pressures that have come um, on, on the professor to uh, attempt to silence him from speaking what he believes to be the truth and uh, accurate information. So a very interesting interview. Hopefully people will join us for that one. And on Thursday, uh, we have um, um, uh, David Rawl who's an author, archaeologist and chronologist. He was the author of A Test of Time. Um, A a really interesting interview um, looking at uh, all of the work that he has done over the decades now. Uh, looking at errors in uh, ancient chronology, uh, which have very much stymied understanding of uh, archaeological evidence in the proper context. And again, he found that when he came forward with new and novel ideas, he was not greeted exactly warmly by the establishment who uh, don't like people pointing out that they are wrong.
0: Okay, David, thank you for that. Well, we'd like to say a big thank you to um, public... (laughs) Uh, Public Child Protection Wales, the ladies who've been fighting all this horrible stuff happening uh, in the sex education of children in schools. And of course, they were helped over the weekend by Louise Collins and Liberty Tactics in their podcast-a-thon. And I'm really delighted to say that thanks to the generosity of people who viewed, um, they've now got over 10000 So they raised several thousand pounds as a result of bringing guest speakers on to talk about these terrible things happening with our children. So well done to PCP Wales and also Lou Collins from Liberty Tactics.
1: Um, Well, it's only a week to go before uh, the coronation. And here's uh, another coronation that took place, of course, a couple of years ago when Prince Charles launched, as he was then, launched the the Great Reset at the World Economic Forum. Um, So he'll be getting a crown on his head. Uh, The uh, Archbishop of Canterbury has now released the running order for the service. And I just wanted David to highlight a couple of things and get your thoughts on this. First of all, the Coronation Oath. Um, so uh, according to the press release from uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the King places his hand on the Bible and the Archbishop administers the oath to the Archbishop of Canterbury. He says, says, will you solemnly promise to swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, your other realms and the territories to any of them belonging or pertaining according to to their respective laws and customs. And uh, Charles will say, I solemnly promise to do so. And then the Archbishop will say, "Uh, will you use your power to cause law and justice in mercy to be executed in all your judgments? Uh, And the King will say, I will. Now, my first point is here. The first line of that is, will you solemnly promise to and swear to govern? Um, Perhaps this escapes me at the minute. David, maybe you could clarify for me. What role in governance will King Charles have exactly? None.
4: None. No. We're, we're a functional democracy. We we are, um, sadly, in my opinion, but we are uh, no longer a constitutional monarchy in anything but name.
1: Yes. So uh, I'm not quite clear how why we'd be taking this particular oath as it stands, but that's another you know, for a longer debate. And then there's the question of his judgments, what judgments is it going to be made? As far as I can see, all the judgments that he has made up until now have been pretty wrong-headed, but anyway.
0: Well, the bit that sticks out to me is your other realms and the territory. So what realms are those? Right. What realms are we talking about? Well, that's...
1: That is the key point. That's a key yeah. point because, of course, we don't know. Though that's what he's going to say on the day. We don't know what text is going to be on the piece of paper that he signs yet, because that hasn't been published. But Oliver Dowden, who's the Cabinet Office Minister Secretary, of course, he is he is responsible for uh, actually uh, deciding what's on that piece of paper. So let's get a bit of clarification on the other realms and territories. This is what he said for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953, changes were made to the oath without express legislative authority to reflect the constitutional position. Uh, He said, uh, some updating to the wording of the oath is required to reflect the current position as regards the realms and territories whose number has evolved since the coronation of Her Majesty uh, Queen Elizabeth II and who will be referred to collectively. So basically, this is because uh, uh, we have uh, a number of, Uh, territories around the world, which no longer consider uh, King Charles to be their head of state uh, as of in the last 50 years and so forth. So the the wording has to be changed. Uh, So realms and territories means former colonies. Uh, Brian is basically what it means. So they say. Indeed. Uh, So let's uh, move on then to this bit because this is the bit that uh, really uh, surprised me. Uh, The homage of the people. Why do we need to make a homage uh, so the Archbishop of Canterbury will say, I call upon all persons of goodwill in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and other realms and territories uh, to make their homage in heart and voice to their undoubted king, defender of all. Uh, and then it says to all who so desire in the Abbey and elsewhere, say together, I swear that I pay true allegiance to her, your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law, so help me God. Well, sorry, but I won't be saying that, David, uh, but nonetheless... This is a fairly unique. Uh, I believe it has never happened.
4: Yeah, this, I find this b- bizarre because this is what <laughs> they're they're putting an innovation in, and the innovation is to what is it is it make us more American and the sweet allegiance things? This is this is not what we do. Um, frankly, we're British. We understand how the constitution works, or we used to. And uh, we don't need the, 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 the a, sh- a, a showy proclamation of that nature. It's all much more subtle, and all the better for it. Why introduce this now? It's much more likely to generate opposition than it is to generate support. Um, it's all. It, it seems to be an error, or um, um, something that's going to it's going to cause um, an attack on the monarchy. Uh, not support for it.
1: Um, I wonder how much of it is uh, his insecurity in his own position. But anyway, uh, we will see. I think, uh, I think you're right, David, though, uh, because it's already producing a response and uh, re- many people that are leaning on the Republican side of things suggesting this is pretty outrageous. But anyway... We'll move on.
0: Well, we'll move on. But the linkage, of course, is remember that King Charles has been very keen to be promoting the war in Ukraine. He's been visiting the Ukrainian soldiers' training. And um, it's quite clear the agenda is to keep that war running. So I'm just going to return on the subject of casualties. Now, we showed this headline from The Times a couple of days ago. Uh, it's pretty emotive, echoes of Stalingrad as casualties stream from the battle for Bakhmut. Um, now, this article, written by a lady called Catherine Philp, and in it is some pretty emotive stuff. Um, but amongst the talk about how difficult it is to treat the flood of casualties, there's this statement Ukraine forbids the reporting of casualty figures, although last month, Western officials gave a figure of 120,000 killed and wounded against 200,000 from the Russian side. And then she goes on to say, Kiev is said not to share the true figures, even with its allies, mean, <clears throat> Excuse me, meaning the Pentagon may have little idea of the true toll. So that's an incredible statement that um, here she is as a journalist with a team working inside Ukraine, but they're really not sure what the casualties are. And we should only worry as to whether the Pentagon knows. We're not going to worry whether the British public knows after their money's gone to Ukraine. So I'm going to say, does Catherine Phil really not know that Kiev is hiding huge Ukrainian casualty figures? And of course, they're doing it because if those figures were to come into the public domain in Ukraine or the UK... I suggest the call for a stopping of the war would increase. But is she incapable of investigating the true horror of these figures? This is a journalist working with teams of other people inside Ukraine, but she doesn't know. Uh, this is one of the pictures showing uh, a fraction of the devastation in bakhmut um, But can you see the headline for the Times picture? Well, you've got to look very closely because the real headline is down at the bottom. And what does it say? It says this. Some in Ukraine fear that the street by street fighting in Bakhmut is costing too many lives. But of course, no mention made of the true total of men killed, certainly well over 500 a day running for a great many days. And in the last few days, uh, possibly up to a thousand Ukrainians killed per Per day. But uh, if we have a look at her Twitter account, um, she gets very fired up about the fact that uh, she's saying on March the 18th, I was lucky enough to return to Baghdad 20 years after I was first there and six years since my first visit to hear Iraqi voices on the continuing fallout and legacy of the American invasion. Well, she seems to understand what took place in Iraq and she's listening to the people. Uh, But with Ukraine, she can't understand what's really taken place. And we've got a US-UK proxy war with no US-UK casualties. We simply leave it it to the Ukrainians to do the dying. So I, I find this journalist astonishing that she finds it so difficult. But she also picks up on Boris Johnson and uh, she's forwarded the, or sorry, retweeted the Kiev Post here. Former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced his candidacy for the post of NATO General Secretary, uh, Sky News reported. So she's picked up on that. And she also retweeted this, uh, which was Chris Shaw saying, Boris Johnson, utterly shameless, self-aggrandizing, traitorous, duplicitous a moral, corrupt, two-bit, mendacious character. Uh, That's uh, pretty strong friend of Ukraine. He couldn't care less. All he wants is that NATO General Secretary gig. Have you checked this out? And then there's an embedded film clip by uh, former BBC man John Sweeney, Um, So she's getting pretty excited about Boris Johnson. Uh, But of course, Boris Johnson was the man who worked to destroy the peace initiative that could have stopped all the killing in Ukraine in the first place. So let's have a look at the little film clip by John Sweeney.
3: Welcome to Umbria in the heart of Italy. And we're interested... In this mountain over here, you could call it La Montagna de Russi, the mountain of the Russians. The far side of the mountain is owned by the Yakunin family, very close to Vladimir Putin, and there's even gossip that Putin himself might have an interest in the mountain. The south side is owned by Yevgeny Lebedev. That's his beautiful palazzo, Palazzo Terranova. And a regular guest is Boris Johnson first as London Mayor, then as Foreign Secretary. Now, you'll be astonished to discover that at these parties there's a ton of Russian women, beautiful lovelies from Russia and elsewhere. So Boris goes to bunga-bunga parties in Italy. Who gives a damn? I don't. But, and here's the rub, MI6 did. What concerned them was not what Boris was doing, but where he was doing it, the Russian mountain. I have two sources who've told me that MI6 was worried that Boris Johnson, when he was Foreign Secretary, was a security risk. And there's another thing. On at least one occasion that we know about, when Boris Johnson came to Italy, he left his Metropolitan Police Protection team back in England. Now, you don't have to trust me on a word of this, because this story has been reported by the BBC and the Sunday Times this summer. The newspaper even quoted a cabinet minister saying that Boris Johnson, because of his private life, was open to blackmail. Then Boris Johnson becomes prime minister and silence falls. But the question stands, prime minister, to clear the air. Will you launch an inquiry to discover whether there is a security risk inside number 10? To which, yourself. Yes,
0: So obviously, we're going back a couple of years there. I think that clip was made somewhere around 2018. Um, But of course, um, the point remains that uh, Boris Johnson worked to prevent peace in Ukraine. Uh, He's got that background. And at one point, he's put forward as General Secretary to NATO. Should we be concerned? I think we should. Although the BBC man there says he's not really bothered but he notes that MI6 is uh, is bothered. I'm uh, just going to uh, just come back, and just promote this uh, one. Um, I know it's from Open Democracy, which will make many people wince, but actually a, a very interesting article about Boris Johnson and what was going on here, which you might le- like to look at. So I'm going to come back to the um, to the journalist herself. Um, Catherine Philp, who had a pinned tweet, it says, if everybody always lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies, but rather that nobody believes anything any longer. So that's the pinned tweet. But why is it then that uh, neither Catherine nor the Times appear to be able to tell the truth about the war in Ukraine? And if we want to understand this lady a little bit more, you need to get further down her Twitter page uh, where you find this. And I am not going to apologize that there's some pretty offensive stuff in this. I think it needs to be put in front of the public. So he got nothing. I literally caught his hand going from my phone. I am the ninja, not him. Hey, pickpocket, don't choose a hypervigilina PTSD survivor to try to steal from. We tend to be kind of alert. Also, you're a C. There's no excuse for what you do. So go F yourself. So this is the quality of journalism at the moment, which doesn't appear to be able to identify the tens and tens and tens of thousands of Ukrainian and Russian men uh, dying in this proxy war. I, I find it shameful, Mike. Difficult to know how to describe it, really. Okay, David, let's move on
1: to uh, global citizenship education, because we all need to know how to be a global citizen.
4: Oh, we do, we do. So, uh, this comes from the UN and UNESCO. They say, while the world may be increasingly inter- interconnected, human rights uh, violations, inequality and poverty still threaten peace and sustainability. I thought it was actually wealth and abundance that threatened sustainability. I thought that was the whole point of sustainability, not poverty. But still, that's what they say. And the global citizen education, G said, is UNESCO's response to these challenges. It works by empowering learners of all ages to understand that these are global, not local issues, and to become active promoters of a more peaceful topic.